Imagine for a second starting a campfire. You gather kindling and strike a match, and soon you hear a quiet crackling. You see small flames. There's no heat yet. Then, before you know it, the fire is roaring. You have to step back because of the heat on your face. The smoke is making it hard to catch your breath. This is how the story of David's murder came to me. Slowly at first, and then all at once. Almost exactly three years ago, I came across a photo of David on the Kansas City Cold Case website. In it, David is effortlessly photogenic. His boyish face is framed by thick, shaggy hair, and his mouth is relaxed, though I imagine now he smiled just after the camera flashed. I never knew David, but I grieve for him, the kid in that picture whose eyes seem to ask for my help. It sounds crazy, I know, but I feel deeply connected to David almost as if he chose me that lazy summer day as I haphazardly scrolled. So many times over the past three years, I've tried to step away, but David and his story, like the fire you just imagined, consume me, and I have no choice but to lean into the smoke and see where it leads. I'm Dylan Kingsley, and this is Burn. August 13, 1974, was a typical Tuesday for David. Summer break was coming to an end. He and his younger sister Susan had just returned home eight days earlier from a two-month-long stay in California. School was starting soon. That morning, David spent time with a friend reading comic books and expressed his interest in joining the Air Force so he could learn how to fly. From around 1.30 to 8 o'clock p.m., David hung out at the Q-Stick a pool hall in the neighborhood that David and his friends frequented. Around 8.30, David's girlfriend, who I'll call Linda, and her mother picked David up at his house. They returned to Linda's and hung out with a mutual friend of theirs until about 10. David's timeline becomes a little unclear here, but I haven't decided if it's important or not. In one of the four statements she gave to police, Linda said she and David went down the street to Shakey's Pizza and played foosball for about an hour and a half before returning to her house. In the other three statements, she said she and David stayed at her house the entire time. At 12.15 or 11, depending on if you ask Linda or David's sisters, David called his mom Wanda for a ride home. Wanda was already in bed and annoyed that David was out past curfew, so she refused him. The call was out of character for David. He always walked the two miles home from Linda's house. Occasionally, he would hitchhike. According to Linda, David left at 12.45 to walk to his house. Linda watched David walk down Armitage Drive and turn right onto Blue Ridge Boulevard. If he followed his typical route home that night, he would walk north on Blue Ridge until he got to Longview Road, where he would turn right. David Street, Dittman Avenue, was one of the last before Longview Road turned into Longview Farm. According to Google Maps, the whole walk would have taken him 36 minutes, and he should have gotten home sometime around 1.21 a.m. 
At 3.24 a.m., Corporal William Messick, a police officer in the city of Belton that lies just southeast of Kansas City, heard a call over his radio. Transmission was breaking up, but Messick was able to make out the words, laying on the north side and DOA. The call was coming from Lieutenant Harry Funston in Raymore Patrol Car 9B. Lieutenant Funston was nearing the end of his night patrol shift when he noticed smoke going across his headlights. He shined the high beams of his police car, a 1972 light green Ford Galaxy 500, and noticed something lying on the north side of County Line Road. When he shined his vehicle's spotlight on the area, he realized it was a body, still smoldering from an apparent fire. Corporal Messick responded to the call for assistance. When he arrived at the scene, he smelled burning meat and heard sizzling sounds, which he assumed were fluids leaking out of the victim's body. There were welts on the victim's back that Messick thought looked like he had been hit with a wide belt. Thirteen minutes after Lieutenant Funston's initial call, the Kansas City Police Department was notified that the body was lying on the north side of County Line Road, meaning it was in Jackson County and within KCPD's jurisdiction. KCPD Sergeant Earl King arrived at the scene and assigned one detective to complete a crime scene report and another to interview Lieutenant Funston. Funston said he passed the location between 1 and 1.30 a.m. and didn't see anything out of the ordinary. He checked the area often during his patrol shifts because people dumped trash and shotguns there. Lately, they had been having problems with burglary and drug traffic, so he was checking it even more often. Funston, along with one of the KCPD detectives, questioned the residents of the four houses closest to the crime scene. No one at the two houses to the west and one to the east saw or heard anything unusual that night. At the fourth house, half a mile east of the crime scene, the residents said their dogs barked between 2 and 3 a.m. They got up, checked around the house, but didn't see anything, so they went back to bed. The victim was lying near the edge of the road on his right side, with his feet extending down into the roadside ditch. He was bound at the wrists and knees with rope. His clothing was almost completely burnt. Metal Levi Strauss buttons and a zipper in the up position were burned from his pants and lying on the ground near his waist. His t-shirt was identified by the tag as Stedman brand size medium. He was wearing brown suede cowboy boots. On his right-hand ring finger, he wore a silver ring with a turquoise stone surrounded by an engraved mountain. Various pieces of burnt, knotted rope were found around his body. And one of the many haunting details in this case, there were weeds between his hands and fingers. Twenty-one pieces of evidence were collected at the scene and taken to the regional crime lab to be tested. The evidence included a small amount of burnt money, a portion of a 2 by 4 board with burns and stains, and a tire impression from wet soil near the body. When the victim was taken to the General Hospital morgue for an autopsy to be performed by the Jackson County Medical Examiner, he was in a position often seen when a body is burned. Picture a boxer in a ring and you can see the victim's positioning. His knees were bent, arms flexed and angled in front of him, and his hands were balled into fists. The stance is often mistaken as defensive, as if the victim was fighting back when he died. But really, it's just the muscle shrinking from the heat of the fire, and can happen even if a body is burned after death. 
The welts that Corporal Messick observed on the victim's back were noted as irregular abrasions in the autopsy report. Other than those and the obvious burns, the victim had no other injuries. An unknown amount of blood was later scraped from the victim's left boot and determined to be type B, the same as the victim. But this was before DNA technology, so only blood typing was available, not actual analysis. The victim's airways were swollen and contained black, sooty material, meaning he was still alive when he was set on fire. On the afternoon of August 14th, a radio segment aired seeking the public's help in identifying the victim. A teenage girl called the Metro Squad, saying her friend Linda's boyfriend wore a similar ring as the one described, and he had never made it home the night before after leaving Linda's house. Police made contact with Wanda Iman, the boy's mom, at the grocery store where she worked. She was shown the ring worn by the victim and became hysterical. It belonged to her son. Latent print examiners processed the boy's bedroom and lifted a fingerprint off of a black fluorescent light bulb. The print matched the victim's. The burning body was David Iman. David Lawrence Iman was born December 16, 1958, to Wanda and John at Menorah Medical Center. His parents were married and had two older kids, Johnny and Diane, before divorcing around 1947. Just a couple years later, his parents got married again, to each other, a fact that David's older sister Sally jokingly tells me is part of their family Bible. Sally, David, and Susan were born shortly after the reunion. The family had lived at their house on Dittman Avenue for 12 years when David died. When David was younger, his dad started a Boy Scout pack. A neighbor boy named Rick and his dad joined. I talked to Rick, and I asked him what David was like. He was really outgoing. He was the class clown. My mother was the den leader, and he came, everybody came to my house for our den meeting including David, and he'd just have us rolling on the ground laughing. We'd laugh so hard our sides would hurt. He'd spend a lot of time with his nose in the corner because he was cracking up, doing what little boys do and stuff, but he was outgoing. He loved to laugh. We'd get around his dad and David, and they just crack up, just laugh, and we'd all laugh, and it was so refreshing to me to be around somebody that was laid back and didn't take life so seriously. But in March of 1971, when David was 12, his dad died tragically. He was a diabetic and didn't like going to the doctor. His poorly managed disease caused him to fall asleep randomly, often while driving. On his way to work one night, he fell asleep and wrecked into the back of a semi-truck. Rick told me David changed after his dad's death. He grew his hair long and started smoking pot. David attended Smith Hale Junior High and would have been entering the ninth grade. The year before, he was made to repeat the eighth grade. He wasn't a great student and had been suspended several times, at least one of which was because of a drug-related incident. It'd be easy to assume that a kid like David, whose dad died when he was young, who wasn't very interested in school and turned up dead and dumped on the side of the road, was a troubled kid who got involved in something like drugs and was in over his head. But dozens of his friends were interviewed by police, and all of them said David bought and smoked small amounts of pot, 
was likable, and never had a problem with anybody. He was the type to walk away from a fight and more mature than other boys his age. Just a couple months before I found out about David's case, Susan, David's younger sister, was starting her own journey to find answers. She was only 14 when David was killed, so their mom kept a lot of the details about the murder from Susan. Aside from being shielded from the facts of the case, the trauma of losing her brother, her closest friend, distorted Susan's memories of what she was aware of. She only vaguely remembers David's funeral and the year following his death, when she often ran away for days at a time and was hospitalized for not eating. I've come to believe that David's mom was stoic about the tragedy of it all, almost to a fault. After a couple years, she stopped talking to the media, saying she had a daughter to protect. She rarely talked about David at home. Can you blame her? Can you even fathom the guilt she must have felt for the rest of her life, for not getting out of bed that night, picking David up and scolding him for once again staying out too late? and instead being forced to identify his brutalized body the next day. That thought has gnawed at me constantly when going over this case. I've imagined my own son and the impossible task of staying alive to care for my daughter. Years later, Susan started to remember and was stricken with a newfound grief. She had questions and she wanted answers, but by this time Wanda was gone. So Susan contacted Sergeant Ben Caldwell and the KCPD Homicide Unit to find out what had been done on her brother's case in the last four and a half decades. Caldwell told her that the case was open and active. When she asked about the evidence, the rope, David's boots and clothes, Caldwell told Susan that the only evidence remaining were soil samples and whatever was vacuumed from the suspect's car. It was standard procedure in cold cases for the department to pull evidence once every five years to test it using new technology, so those things had been tested fairly recently. But due to storage conditions and the time that had passed, they didn't contain any usable DNA, so nothing more could be done. The next time they spoke, Caldwell admitted to Susan that all the evidence in David's case had been lost over the years. He couldn't give any further information about when it had been lost or the last time it was tested. I called Sergeant Caldwell in early 2020 and asked if we would be able to look at the records pertaining to David's case, since there was no evidence to retest. He told me we would never get the records. My assumption now is that Caldwell was referring to the statute within Missouri's Sunshine Laws that says records that pertain to an active investigation are closed to the public in order to protect its integrity. Luckily, as a first-degree relative of David's, Susan was entitled to records that would normally be closed, so we immediately submitted a sunshine request to the KCPD Records Unit. Almost four months and $500 later, we received David's case file. What Sergeant Caldwell had to have known if he had ever even glanced at the case file was that by no one's standards was the investigation into David's murder active. With the exception of a handful of reports from 1975 and 1976, and one single report from 1982, the entirety of the investigation was conducted by the Kansas City Metro Squad in the nine days following David's murder. After that, the case was passed to four detectives in the Crimes Against Persons Unit, 
and a few days later placed in the unsolved homicide file. The evidence in David's case was tested in the few days following his murder, and never again. There is a supplemental report from 2019 when, due to pressure from Susan, a detective in the cold case unit attempted to track down any remaining evidence. Concluding that there wasn't any evidence left, the detective recommended that the case be closed pending new information. It's clear to me now that David slipped through the cracks. It likely happened in the same way that a lot of murders go unsolved. An overworked and understaffed police department pulled away by new cases, leaving old ones to languish and collect dust. But so many things about this case have made me question whether there's a bigger story here. What happened to the evidence? Why were so many leads never followed up on or ignored completely? And why was the one man who police most suspected of murdering David allowed to walk away despite the evidence against him? If you have any information about David or his murder, or have questions or theories you'd like to share, please email burnthepodcast at gmail.com. You can also contact the KCPD Tips hotline at 816-474-TIPS. Again, that's 816-474-8477. KCPD offers up to a $25,000 reward for tips that lead to an arrest in a homicide case.